0: Hey, good morning. All right. Uh, Thank you, worship team, for leading us so well, as you always do. We're grateful to you guys, and um, and, uh, we're grateful to our children who just ran out of here as well. That's always... uh for a parent, that can be fun to see, but uh, for, for, for our children, we are grateful for the life and energy they bring to us, aren't we? We really are. Um, hey, well, welcome to Grace Point Church. Again, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at GPC. Thanks for worshiping with us. If you're listening online later to this, thank you for doing that. We hope that you're encouraged no matter where you are in your state of life right now as we come into... A time of worship and focus on who we hope, on who God is and how he intersects with our life now. Now, you find us uh, in the second part of what is a six-part series called Fearless. the subtitles caught in the stare down and the idea that we're caught in the stare down of, of moments of decision. Where the idea being not that we want to become people who are completely fearless, meaning we have no fear, because as we talked last week, having some fear is actually a good. It's, it's helpful to be afraid of running through the red light because you're afraid of what might happen to you or those in your vehicle or those around you. That fear teaches you wisdom and that can be good. This Fearless series is about fear less than you typically do. In other words, trust more, or how do we move from our default function being a a fear or concern or worry about this stage of life to a little bit more of trust. Now, last week we talked about this idea with with our main character, Daniel, um, about uh, what it means to kind of pick the right battles and then resolve to win them. And if you remember with Daniel last week, we looked at a 15-year-old guy who made a decision in the middle of the Babylonian Empire, he made a decision to send the food back to the kitchen. <laughs> a strange decision to make indeed, but he made a decision and he laid his life on the line for vegetables, all right? I'm not going to do that. He did it. And the reason being that he knew that I cannot eat as a, as a follower of Yahweh. I am not permitted to eat the food that comes from the king's table because it already had been blessed to his gods, the Babylonian gods, and if I eat it, then it will be like I'm endorsing these other gods and I'm not going to do it. I don't want that. Give me veggies. And he was willing to cross the king of the world at the time, Nebuchadnezzar. And God blessed that for him. And so the idea being pick your battles and resolve to win them, staying true to your integrity. And we talked about the principle that as you think about what battles you face and which things are worth fighting for, that we want to make a distinction between what is personally personal, personally offensive, personal in what is biblical, and how Daniel made the decision to fight on what was biblical, not just all the things that personally offended him. All right, so this week we pick up the story of Daniel again in the book of Daniel chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, you may as well turn there a while. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew around you. That is our gift to you, by the way, if you don't own one. Uh, Daniel is a little bit of a harder book to find. It's in the Old Testament, and it's one of, um, we'll call the, uh, the, the prophets uh, of the the Old Testament. A lot of Daniel has to do with prophecy. We are not going to spend the bulk of our time there, but we will spend a little bit of time there. Um, find the Psalms, which is kind of the middle of the Bible, and then go to your right, and you'll end up passing by a big book called Isaiah and Ezekiel, and you'll, you'll land there in Daniel in a moment. Now, as you're trying to find that, um, let me just set it up for you this way. Um, have you ever found yourself... Have you ever found yourself in a situation that you would, you would feel like or you would say is a near impossible situation? you ever found yourself in a nearly impossible situation? Meaning, um, of all the people in the world, why are you the one who's in uh, the work situation you're in? Why are you the one, why, why am I the one, have you ever asked the question, why am I the one who's always asked to do the jobs that no one else is asked to do? Why am I the one in my family who always has to do you know, extend grace when no one else has to do that. Have you ever asked the question, why am I the one who is the one who has to be the first one to forgive? Is there anyone else in the kind of marriage that I'm in? It seems like everybody else is great. Is there anyone else in the kind of work situation that I'm in because it seems like everybody else is great? And you ever gotten to the point beyond just being frustrated with moments of life to the point where you feel like there is a hopelessness or an impossibility to your life? Meaning, not only have you gone through seasons where you're not sure if you can make the bills, but rather feeling like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to pay anything again. Not only the season of, man, I don't know if I can make it through this health-wise, but this new health reality is my future. I'm going to be like this for a long time, and this is going to change my friendships. It's going to change my retirement plans. It's going to change what I was planning to do, and I don't know if I'm ever going to get out of this, and I don't know what I'm going to do. Have you ever been in a situation in your marriage where you say, not just that it's kind of annoying that he does or that she does, but you're, you're kind of resigned to saying, it's not just the season. It's not just that he puts the toilet paper this way and she does it that way, but rather it's like, I don't think this is ever going to get better, and this is just it. This is impossible. What am I going to do? You ever felt that way with with dating? (laughs) Like, no one's ever going to want me after you got dumped or whatever for the third time in six months or whatever it is, and you're like, oh, you know, this is impossible. Clearly, not just did I fail, but I am a failure and feel like, I guess I'm just going to have to live with this, and I don't really see a way out. It's just life, and I'm going to have to deal with it somehow. Those kind of impossible situations. In those situations, here's what I think we tend to ask. We tend to ask this question um, this way. If there's a God, if there's a God, can he handle this? If there's a God, can he handle the weight of what I'm dealing with? Can he handle the weight of the disappointment I feel about decisions that are made? Can he handle the weight of the trouble that I feel in my relationships right now? Can he handle the weight of the things that are going on in my mind that people sitting around me do not know, but they're eating me alive, they're gutting me? and I don't even know who to talk to about it, can he handle the weight of this? And is there really a God, or do we just come together and sing songs that have a good melody and hear somebody speak about something semi-significant or maybe just moral or ethical? Is there really a God, and can he really handle the stuff that I see and the stuff that I'm dealing with? Now, if we're honest, In these moments, we also push a little bit further. And here's what we would want to say if we were were honest. Because in these toughest moments, when we are facing stuff that is just flat out hard and it's hard to see our way through, here's kind of what we would like to say. Because when we ask the question, is there God and can he handle it? Basically, the answer to that for us sometimes is, I will know there's a God if he does. And then we lay out what we think God should do. Right? And so we sometimes put it this way, if there's a God, I want him to prove himself by handling things my way. It's kind of, it's kind of a little rough, right? this is just a little direct this morning, but this is where I have found myself and I think in the human experience we can relate that we by default will say, there is so much trouble in my life right now. I wish that I were different, I wish I had more money, I wish, wish my marriage were different, my kids were different, my business, my work, my church, whatever was different, 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 I wish whatever. And if there's a God I would like him to prove himself that he can actually carry the weight of this burden in my life, but I I need him to kind of prove it my way. I mean, that's the only way I would know because if I want my marriage to get better and we end up in a divorce, then is there a God, right? If I want my work to get better and I get laid off, I mean, God can't handle that, right? So, is there a God or not? You know, really, what I need him to do is to come through, and I need him to come through in my way so that my faith can be strengthened in him. And if we're pushing on that, let me just push on that a little bit. Here's what we end up saying, or the position that we end up being in, and that is this essentially I want to be God. I want to be God. I want to control my future. And there's got to be a way that i can figure out how to kind of pull some cosmic strings maybe if i pray enough maybe if i go to church enough maybe if i read my bible enough listen to a christian radio station enough listen to whatever that maybe somehow god will be pleased enough to do things my way because i don't know if he can handle it and the only way for him to prove that he can handle it is to do it my way so what do i have to prove to you god because you're like a big vending machine in the sky if i put in the right amount of money or quarters to do the right things then i can guarantee results for me so what do i need to do And when things don't roll my way, then we begin to ask a tough question. Is there really a God who can handle the impossible stuff of my life? The things that are just hard to see my way through. I bring all of this up because this is where we get caught in the stare down of what am I going to do with my life and who am I going to trust with the weightiest, heaviest things in my life. In the quiet moments when you're going to bed at night, you're laying down and the the stuff starts rolling through your mind again, the worry, anxiety, the fear, and you start wondering and worrying and thinking again about your future, about your faith, about anything. Who are you going to trust in those moments? And is it possible to trust a God who may do things completely different than the way that I want them to be done? So our, our man, our man Daniel, finds himself in a situation like that this morning. Our man Daniel finds himself back in the Babylonian kingdom he's only now 18 years old i'd really want you to get your mind around this he is an 18 year old now our text will begin in chapter 2 it's going to say in the second year of king nebuchadnezzar the second year of king nebuchadnezzar as we do the math essentially means that daniel is now 18 maybe we'll give him 19 okay so big deal 18 or 19 and here is a young man still a teenager still a teenager who we are going to learn from and how he responds to a very 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 difficult, not impossible situation, truly impossible situation. So check it out in Daniel chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. And so the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. Pause it there quick. You see the four people that he summoned. He summoned magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. The magicians are people who could um, divine the future. Uh, they could tell the future in, in the Babylonian world. The enchanters were people who evidently who, who claimed that they could speak to the dead and those in the world. right? The sorcerers um, think like, uh, isn't there like a Mickey Mouse and sorcerer thing? What is that? Uh, the sorcerers apprentice. There you go. All right. Mickey Mouse Sunday morning. Okay. Sorcery. All right. The idea of casting a spell that these people could cast spells. This was their claim. All right. And then the astrologers are people who looked at the stars to try to tell the future. And so Daniel, as he's kind of recounting this moment here in Daniel 2, he wants you to see the scope of who King Nebuchadnezzar is bringing to him. A magician who can tell the future through his magic ways. Um, the enchanter who can talk to the dead, you know, the, uh, the sorcerer who can cast a spell on anybody if need be, and then the, uh, the astrologer who can look at the stars. Basically, he's like, I, all hands on deck. I got something y'all need help to help me with. All right, I need everybody and anybody who has any claim to anything supernatural to come here now and listen. And so this is what happens. They came in, they stood before the king in verse 3. And he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Now, just pause. I have a dream, and I want to know what it means. This is not new. This was so common for kings to do in this time. This was a way um, that uh, was so uh, familiar that actually the Chaldeans wrote and chronicled the dreams of their kings. So their are Chaldean dream books that were composed so that people, astrologers, magicians, sorcerers, and enchanters, when asked by a king, can you please help me interpret this dream, would go to right, their version of Wikipedia, okay, their version of the internet, their version of Google, would be these Chaldean uh, dream books. And you need to know those things were massive. They were massive. They were so difficult to get through that you had to be trained and how to read and understand these dream books. And what they do is they would chronicle all the dreams. Imagine chronicling your weirdest dreams. Isn't that strange? You know, that elephant and the tutu dancing on the whatever. You know, where did that come from? All, right. all these weird dreams were chronicled. And and then what they did is historically, then following the dream, they chronicled historical events that they thought could match up with what that dream could possibly have meant. And so not only do you have the dream chronicle, but you have the history, an attempt to tie in hundreds of years of history to each of these dreams. And so you can imagine of all the kings that come, you have these books. And so these guys are coming in, and they have in their mind, all right, we've got a dream we're going to have to interpret. Not a problem. We've got enough people here. The committee will meet. You know, we'll pass a resolution. We'll talk together, whatever. We'll talk to the dead, whatever we need to do. But we've got a book that will guide us. So, All right, tell us the dream. We'll, we'll, we'll do our thing. Verse 4. The astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. And the king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, You will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Houston, we have a problem. Where do I go in the dream book to get the dream that I don't know what it is? And so the astrologers, understanding they're in a real difficult situation, they say, okay, verse 7, once more, uh, they replied... Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. And then verse 8. And then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you don't tell me the dream, there's just one penalty for you. You conspire to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know what, excuse me, then I will know that you can interpret it for me. You ever have that dream at night, it was so vivid and so real, and you were thrashing around or whatever it was, and you were sweating and all that, and you wake and you're thinking in the middle of that dream, there's no way in the world I'm gonna forget this dream when I wake up. Right? You ever been there? Then you wake up and you're like, I had a weird dream, I have no idea what it was. But it was bad. you ever been there? And so here's what the astrologers, magicians, and chanters are hoping. If we buy time, this is a tough situation, but if we buy time, he will forget the details of the dream. And we can come back. And we can kind of tell him something general, something, you know, real broad that might be found in the the newspapers today about a horoscope or something or a fortune cookie kind of feel like, you know, you will find the love of your life later on or whatever, right? You know, maybe we can tell him something broad and he'll forget it and we'll all live uh, at least. That's what they're hoping. He said, no, no, no. You are hoping the situation will change. Do your job. So verse 10, the astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. And then they make this statement, amazing statement. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. Just think about the foolishness of that statement for a minute. What do you think they're paid to do? Talk to the gods. Right? I mean, no one can reveal this except the gods. And if I'm the king, I'm like, well, what are you doing? Like, that's your job. I'm asking you to do your job. You talk to the gods and tell me. You're the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers. That's what you do. Why are you on my payroll if you can't do the job that you're supposed to do? Talk to the gods, and they're saying, no one can do this except the gods. Why do I have you around then? And so the king gets very angry in verse 12. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. And so the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. And so when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact as an 18, 19-year-old. And he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? And Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, check this out, amazing. Daniel went into the king and asked for time, and look at the confidence of the statement, so that he might interpret the dream for him. King, I will interpret the dream for you. I just need time. Verse 17, and then Daniel evidently granted that request, returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel, in response, praised the God of heaven and said, and in this section, the next three verses, it is, it is an amazing section of praise to God. Praise be, he says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge of the discerning. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and dwells with, them, with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Verse 24. So Daniel goes to Ariok whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Let me ask you. Daniel makes a statement to Ariot, Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. You ever, you ever wonder if you're, you're ready for the big moment of your life? You ever wonder if you're prepared for the time that sometimes you can't even tell when it's coming, but the time when you have to make a decision, when you have to lead, when you have to serve in a very sacrificial way, and you just know that the spotlight has come on you for a moment, and the question is, are you going to be big enough to handle that moment, and is your God going to be there to support you in that moment? This is that moment for Daniel. He says to Arioch, go to the king. Tell him, I'm coming to interpret the dream. You need to know Daniel has, what assurance does Daniel have that he has it right? He's got none. He has no assurance that what he's going to say to the king is correct, except for his trust in what was revealed to him during the night. Would you bank on that? Would you bank your life on that and the life of your friends on that? Take me to the king. I'm going to interpret his dream for him. And it's in this moment where Daniel's caught in that stare down of what is he going to do? And is there a God who can handle the weight of this situation? And Am I going to trust my life to him? And he falls back on him almost like that team-building exercise of a trust fall that many of us have done at a retreat at some point in our life or, you know, a friend's party or whatever, where you fall backwards into the arms of people that you trust and hope that they catch you. It's almost like that moment for Daniel. In a way, eyes closed, fall back, let's go. I believe this is right. Verse 25, so Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, And this is what he says, I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. And so the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel responded in very interesting response. Again, 18, 19-year-old. He answers in a very specific way. He says, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. In other words, Ariok has introduced me as a man who can interpret this dream. You've asked me if I'm able to do this. I want to be clear, no. This is beyond me. This is beyond anybody to do. But, he says, verse 28, but there is a God. Let me introduce him to you, Nebuchadnezzar. He's in heaven. He reveals mysteries. He has shown Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. And your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these and then he's about to talk. And he better get it right. <laughs> he better not start talking, right, about some sheep jumping over a fence somewhere or something going on being sucked down into the middle of your house, you know, with burning, whatever. I mean, you have to be right, and you have to be right on it. You can't be general. You've got to be very specific. And he speaks into this moment with no assurance from the king at all. It's amazing, amazing confidence to trust your life to a God who revealed this with no assurance that you're right he goes in and he says, king, here's your dream. Here's what it was. And he says, we need, we need to read it here, verse 29. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mystery showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. So you looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. Look at the detail of the interpretation of this dream. This is nothing broad, sweeping, general. This isn't about a storm that's about to come and things are going to go badly. This is very, very, very specific. Verse 34, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human, excuse me, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces. At the same time, it became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And this was the dream and now, without waiting for you to comment on it, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to tell you what your dream meant. Look at that confidence in Daniel. This was your dream. I don't really have a doubt about it. God told me, and so here's what it was. It's just so matter of fact. It's it's like you don't even pause to understand the significance of that moment. Like, sure, why wouldn't God come through? Can he handle this? Absolutely. And here's what he did. He delivered this to me. He's the revealer of mysteries. Why would God not deliver this? Boom, and he speaks right into it. It's amazing, amazing confidence, amazing faith that he has. And then he interprets it, verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings, and the God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After that, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. And next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks into pieces, so will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw, the feet and toes are partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. It will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw the iron mixed with clay. As the toes are partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with the baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron remains uh, mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Amazing. And in that explanation, Daniel just walks through hundreds and hundreds of years of history that will be, is now in our time, history in, in Nebuchadnezzar's time was future, from the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian Empire to the Greeks to the Romans, um, and now we believe has yet to fully be fulfilled with the coming kingdom of God. This is stuff uh, that is future prophetic material, about 600 plus years that has just been walked through here. Amazing deal. And so Daniel is just done. He stops. This is, this is your dream. This is the interpretation of the dream. And what King Nebuchadnezzar does next is, is truly amazing. Truly amazing. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Are you kidding me? Who does that? The king of the known world at the time, the greatest superpower of the age. Can you imagine our president bowing face down to somebody else? Can you imagine that in the media? Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine your boss doing that? Can you just imagine someone with this kind of authority, not just kneeling, but bowing face down? It's an amazing recognition that Nebuchadnezzar has, that there is something, there is something, this revealer of mysteries, God that is so great and so powerful that he can handle anything I give him, including not even telling him what my dream is, but he can then give this vision to someone who can then interpret it for me. There must be a God And he can handle whatever comes my way. An amazing statement. Amazing reality. Verse 48. So the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. And he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, administrators of the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. All right. So as we think about the so what for this story, and it's an amazing story of an 18 or 19-year-old being the mouthpiece of God for this moment in in Israel's history and Babylon's history, Um, the question comes back as we think about this as we're caught kind of in a stare down of who do we trust with our life. And this first question I ask is this, can God handle this? Can God handle the stuff that you're dealing with? Can God handle the anxiety, the worry, the stress of your life? Can God handle the quiet moments where you just doubt your own security as a person, where you doubt your ability to lead, to serve? You doubt your ability to be able to function well and and grow and move? You doubt whether things will ever change? You worry about other people and what's going to happen? Things are out of your control and you you worry, you wonder? the, The question is, can God handle it? It's a fair question to ask. Can God handle the heaviest stuff of my life that is sitting here right in front of me? And that I look at and I say, this is impossible. I, d- I don't know what to do. I don't see a way through. Can God ha- do I serve a God that's big enough to handle this? Now, it's easy to say, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, because we just read a good story. And God came through and delivered Daniel and his friends. It's a good story. It's a story that will make a Disney movie someday, perhaps. It's a story that has a happy ending that people want to have. But if we're honest, we have to have a theology, we have to have a system of belief that's based in reality, and not just in happy endings. So the the next question is this, am I okay, am I okay if God doesn't handle this my way? Am I okay if God doesn't handle this my way? In in other words, when we ask the question, is there a God who's big enough to handle this? And the answer is yes, but we really kind of, right on the heels of that, we want, we want this God to handle it our way. So when I say we have to have a theology that's based in reality, we have to have a God who we will say we're going we're gonna to trust him no matter what he does. If you want to think of it very clearly, this has to pass the test of faith um, in the Middle East right now. Okay, if, if, you, if you are uh, in Syria right now, we have Christian brothers and sisters in Syria right now, Who are fearing for their life because of ISIS and what is going on there. And I'm telling you, this is not a a happy message. Can God handle this? Oh, God can handle this. That's great. And I'm just going to close my eyes and go to bed happy because I have a God who can handle this. Now, in truth, what I want is I want him to handle it my way, right? I would prefer if I'm in Syria right now, I prefer to live and I prefer for my family to live. But if he doesn't, and if I don't, do I still have a God who handled it in his way, and can I be okay with that? If I'm a refugee in Somalia right now, we have to ask this question of our faith and for our brothers and sisters in Christ there and ask, are we okay, am I okay if God doesn't handle my refugee situation the way that I would prefer him to handle it? Am I okay if I'm in Sierra Leone or if I'm in some other African country that's dealing with Ebola right now? Am I okay if God doesn't handle this disease the way that I want him to handle it? Because we know and we're smart enough people to know that there are hundreds of Christians regularly, yearly, monthly, who are dying from persecution, disease, starvation, etc. And this message is not a a message for affluent, middle class, well-fed, fairly well-to-do middle-class Americans who are like, wow, man, that's great, you know, now I'm able to make the car payment now. Yeah, but you're alive, like you can put food on the table, right? Like you're not worrying about the next meal. We all have extra food (laughs) in our fridges, not just enough for right now. And so are we okay, right, to serve a God who may not handle things my way? And this is a tougher question to ask. We are all, and here's what we know, we know that it's true and it's right, that we don't want God to handle things just our way. We know that in our mind. In fact, if we could back it up to when we were very young, when our parents told us no on some things. Now that we're older, we look back and we say, man, I'm grateful that my parents told me no when I wanted seven scoops of ice cream, All right? I'm glad they told me no when I wanted, right, to play in the street, okay? I'm glad they loved me enough, okay, to say no to the things that I wanted, but I just didn't think they got it, right? I mean, I just didn't think they understood, But here's what we know now. They have a view and a perspective that was broader than us when we were three, right? That's what parents do. Loving parents say, "Mm, I'm for your best, but you don't even know what your best is yet. I do. Trust me. I do. Trust me. And so here's where we stand then as adults now who think we know the best for us, certainly. The best would certainly be for my marriage to work out, right? The best would certainly be for me to make enough money, right? The best would certainly be for me to get married in the time period that I want, right? The best would certainly be for all tension to go away, right? I mean, that would certainly be the best. Isn't that what God wants? And we have to ask the question, am I okay to serve a God who may not do things the way that I want them to do? And can he still handle my impossible situation? And this is where you and I are caught in the stare down of what are we going to do with our lives? In the moments where we have to choose, am I going to trust this God or not? Or am I just going to kind of pack it in and settle in for an average and mediocre faith? Am I going to trust in this God, no matter what comes, to know that he can handle whatever comes, and that I am not going to put myself in a position to be God, but he is the God of the universe, the king of all kings, the revealer of mysteries, who himself can handle things that I will never be able to do. I want to encourage you that God can handle whatever you've got going on. He can. If you're thinking, Tim, you don't know what's going on for me, you're probably right. Tim, you haven't experienced what I've experienced. You're probably right. I I will give you all of that. I'm not in your shoes. You're right. But I'm just saying, we serve a God who can handle all of the stuff that we all deal with. The problem is, he doesn't always play according to our rules. He doesn't always play the game we want him to play. Because... He's in charge, and we're not. I want to encourage you this morning in the middle of tough stuff, in the middle of what seems to be impossible and difficult circumstances sometimes, I want to encourage you to lean back, to trust, to fear just a little bit less what the outcomes might be, and trust just a little bit more. As Daniel walked into King Nebuchadnezzar with no assurances that this was actually going to work but taking a step nonetheless. I want to encourage you to take a step nonetheless, even if you don't have an assurance that this will work, even if you're not sure if it's going to be the right thing, to trust in a God who can handle your life, who sees it, who knows it, who's strong and powerful enough to do it, to lead where you need to lead, to serve where you need to serve, to have the conversation that you need to have, to be the leader in your marriage you need to be, to be the servant in your marriage you need to be, to be the giver, the sustainer, the gracious, forgiving person that you need to be in the sphere of influence in which you have. We serve a God who is good, strong, and able to handle, even if he doesn't play by our rules. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can stop for a few moments and study this section of scripture from an 18, 19-year-old boy Daniel, we're amazed at the maturity and the wisdom given to some people and the maturity of a teenage boy now to teach us and show us what faith in a very, very difficult, impossible situation looks like with facing impending death and dismemberment, torture, went with confidence as if it was almost nothing with this strong, solid conviction that there is a God who revealed to him the mysteries that needed to be revealed at the right time. So Father, we know that you can handle the things in our lives, and yet we also know that you don't always do it the way that we want or hope or expect. And so I pray that you would give us courage to fear just a little bit less when we're in the great unknowns and to trust you even if things don't play out the way that we would like them to play out. Give us the courage to do what we know we need to do and act in the way that we know we need to act. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.